Due to the graphic nature of this haunted place, listener discretion is advised. This episode includes dramatizations of abortion and suicide. We advise extreme caution for children under 13. There was no such thing as a haunted jukebox. Sean knew that. It was simple. People saw patterns where there were none. They wanted to be scared, so they found excuses to be. His best friend Brian liked to argue against Sean's reasoning, but he didn't have a leg to stand on. After all, he'd once run away from a pigeon that moved too fast. Reminding Brian of the pigeon incident was just enough to get him to agree to get a job as a dishwasher at Bobby Mackey's so Sean wouldn't have to be alone. He felt a little bad for shaming his friend like that, but when the bro code didn't work, one had to think outside the box. They were giving the tables a final wipe down at the end of their shift, when the jukebox appeared to start up on its own. Brian startled, but Sean laughed and told him to go back to work. The old thing was finicky, and if it was ghosts, they had okay taste in music. Feedback blared through the speakers. Both Sean and Brian covered their ears. Sean was still trying to get his bearings, but he saw Brian stumbling toward the machine. Maybe when the chips were down, Brian could handle more than a pigeon. The lights in the room seemed to darken. Another crescendo made Sean bite down so hard his tongue bled. Finally, the sound stopped. Sean turned to congratulate Brian, but his friend was standing there, jaw open, eyes wide and glassy. Sean asked him what was wrong. Brian held up a long black cord. The jukebox hadn't been plugged in. Welcome to Haunted Places, a ParCast original. I'm Greg Polson. Every Thursday, I take you to the scariest, eeriest, most haunted, real places on Earth. You can find all episodes of Haunted Places for free on Spotify. And every Tuesday, make sure to check out Urban Legends. These special episodes of Haunted Places are available exclusively on Spotify. This week, join me on a supernatural journey to Bobby Mackey's Music World in Wilder, Kentucky, an eclectic bar and live music venue with tragedies on every floor. And discover why, to this day, it's haunted. We'll begin our tour of Bobby Mackey's Music World after this. Wilder, Kentucky is a town of about 3,000 people along the state's northern border. It's small, very small, less than four square miles. Much of it is wooded. One might not expect a town of this size to have a nightclub, but it does. In 1978, a former farm and railroad worker named Bobby Mackey opened a honky-tonk bar off Kentucky Route 9. The building he chose had a long history before Mackey took ownership of it. Local legend says that in the past it was both a speakeasy and a slaughterhouse, on top of being a hotbed for Satanism. Today, it's rumored to play host to all kinds of spirits, from full-body apparitions to demonic portals. Bobby Mackey's checkered past and spectral present have earned it the title of the most haunted nightclub in America. 
Sharon didn't like working on the desolate strip of road that led to Bobby Mackey's. She wanted to be closer to Cincinnati, where there were always people around. Things got too quiet here. The silence left too much space for her own thoughts. After the last song played on the jukebox and the patrons had finally left, she mopped the floors and wiped down countertops. The windows would shake slightly, but she'd been told not to pay attention to that. The regulars joked that it was some vengeful spirit. Sharon suspected the cause was far more mundane, cheap glass and poor construction. Sharon unplugged the jukebox and took one last look around the place. It had never shined like the Chrysler building, but it looked clean again. She went through a small door in the back, which barely cleared her head, and up a small staircase to the tiny apartment above the bar she called home. Living and working in the same place took its toll. She had nights where she dreamt that she was trapped like Rapunzel in her tower. The whole world could change around her, and she'd be none the wiser, locked up above. In the light of day, those dreams seemed more than a little dramatic. At night, however, they almost felt prophetic. This building held whatever pieces of herself she'd sewn together. If she ever dared leave, they would all unravel. Long strands pulling her into the strange dark well in the basement. A relic of one of the bar's many other lives. As she climbed the steps, she saw someone waiting at the top for her. It was a woman wearing a faded dress. The intruder swayed on the step, her hands clasped around her throat. Sharon paused and yelled that this area was off limits. The woman held Sharon's eyes and mouthed two words. Help me. Suddenly, she sprinted down the stairs. Sharon braced herself, expecting to be bowled over. But just before they made contact, the woman disappeared into thin air. A wave of nausea overwhelmed Sharon. It was hard to describe exactly what had happened. She had felt something hot pass through her body. She suddenly realized she'd never heard any footsteps, even as the woman was charging at her. She reminded herself that she was tired. It had been a long night of tending to customers. She was probably having a waking nightmare. Sharon continued up the steps. The nausea started to dissipate. The heat was long gone. Sharon entered the cramped corner she called home and sat down on her small vintage chair. It had come with the place and certainly wasn't her style, but she made do. After a while, the familiarity was comforting. She untied her shoes and let her body relax for the first time in days. Sharon's head felt heavy. She didn't want to move. She let her eyes fall shut, telling herself that she was just taking a quick power nap. She'd go to bed soon. She woke to the feeling of serrated metal teeth pressing into her neck. Sharon's body jerked involuntarily. The blade dug into her skin. She screamed, knowing that no one would hear her. There was only the highway and the river beside the nightclub. She was alone. Her eyes went wide as they adjusted in the darkness. There was a man leering over her. His hand shook with the weight of the saw in his hand. In the haze of her tired mind, she wondered how he'd entered when everything was locked up tight for the night. She told him that there was a safe downstairs, but it was empty. 
He didn't want money. The man spat on the floor and told her he was there to help her take care of things. Sharon didn't understand. She asked if he could remove the blade from her neck. The man moved it down to her abdomen. She heard him mutter something about that part of her body being trouble. Sharon snorted. His eyes darted back to her. But they were vacant, as if he'd forgotten she was there. The man told her that he'd been practicing. He could take out any baby real easy now. He promised her that it wouldn't be like the last time. He'd done his homework. Sharon blanched. This man was disturbed. Had to be. She tried to keep her voice calm as she asked him to talk about the last time. His eyes grew cold. He told her not to worry about that. He'd taken care of the problem. Sharon asked if the problem was a baby. Annoyance was written across his face. He told her the baby hadn't been the real problem anyway. It was the girl, the one he'd taken care of. Sharon didn't know what to do. The stranger had just admitted to killing someone. If he was telling her all this, did he plan to kill her too? Why? She told him that he sounded very smart. Maybe if she could get him talking long enough, she could learn something that would save her. He nodded, muttering that most people forgot about dental records, but not him. He was a dentist. Sharon was starting to put the pieces of the story together. The man had taken out some poor woman's teeth as the cover story for a failed abortion. Her heart broke for whatever woman had lost her life at this man's hands. But why was he here? Sharon asked why he'd come to her. Surely there were women in town that he could help with his unique brand of services. The man told her that he couldn't go to town because he promised to stay here forever. That didn't make any sense. She had never seen him before in her life. A creak came from the other side of the room. The man's eyes went to the space behind Sharon. He took several steps backward, pulling his blade back with him. He was muttering again, and while Sharon couldn't make out the words, she could make out the emotion. Fear. She didn't hesitate. She rushed toward the man and shoved hard, sending him to the ground. The blade lay discarded beside him. Sharon tried to pick it up, but it scalded her hands as she touched it. She released it immediately and examined her hands. But all that remained was the searing pain. Her palms seemed untouched. She looked up to see the man crawling away on his hands and knees, begging for her to stop. Sharon did not pursue him. She tried once more to pick up the saw from the floor. It vanished. She looked back at the man, but he was gone too. Sharon gasped, then caught her breath. Hot air stirred the back of her neck. Slowly, she turned to see what the man had been afraid of. Behind her chair stood the woman from the stairs, wearing the same faded dress, swaying with an invisible breeze. Her head was now gone. There are many ominous rumors surrounding Bobby Mackey's, but there's only one substantiated report of violence. The nightclub is said to be haunted by the ghost of Pearl Bryan, 
a young woman whose headless corpse was supposedly found less than two miles from the club in 1896. Pearl's boyfriend, a dental student named Scott Jackson, was found guilty of the crime along with a friend, Alonzo Walling. Walling protested his innocence until his death, claiming that he wasn't there when Pearl was killed. The authorities offered Walling clemency if he could tell them where Pearl's head was buried, but he claimed he didn't know. Her head was never recovered. The rumors say that Pearl was pregnant and that her death was the result of a failed abortion carried out by Jackson and Walling. The prosecutor suggested that Pearl was beheaded in an attempt to prevent identification after her death. Others suggest that Jackson was a Satanist and threw her head into the well in the basement as part of a sacrifice. Now, Pearl is said to haunt Bobby Mackey's, appearing to certain guests as a full apparition. Almost full anyways. She's always missing her head. Up next, a family tragedy leaves a permanent stain at Bobby Mackey's. Hi, it's Greg. Parcast has a brand new series sure to become your next podcast obsession. It's called Medical Murders, and it exposes a dark and disturbing diagnosis that not every doctor wants to extend your life. Every Wednesday, Medical Murders introduces you to the worst the medical community has to offer. Men and women who took an oath to save lives, but instead use their expertise to develop more sinister specialties. Join host Alastair Burton as he examines the formative years and motives of history's most infamous killers, dissecting their medical backgrounds with expert analysis and professional insight provided by practicing MD, Dr. David Kipper. You'll investigate a wide range of heinous healthcare workers, like the general practitioner believed to be the most prolific serial killer in modern history, or the dentist who led a double life as a hitman or even the doctor and gang member who mix deadly potions for unhappy housewives to use on their husbands. When it comes to these true crime stories, the only thing the doctor ordered is murder. Follow Medical Murders free on Spotify or wherever you get your podcasts. Now back to the story. We don't actually know what Bobby Mackey's looked like around the time of Pearl Bryant's death. Some say it was a slaughterhouse. Others claim it was a distillery. The answers seem to be lost to time, disappearing into the rolling farmland of rural Kentucky. Whatever it was, the consensus of local legend says that by the 1940s, the building that would become Bobby Mackey's music world was a combined casino and speakeasy called the Latin Quarter. It was glamorous, especially for rural Kentucky, and rumor had it that the establishment was run by the mob. And one terrible night, tensions within the family came to a head. Tony loved his daughter Johanna more than anything in the world, but she could be an utter monster. Spoiled, selfish, and sharper than a serpent's tooth. It was such a shame. She was a pretty girl, even talented, marginally. Enough to fill in as a singer on the nights when Tony's usual crooner, Robert Randall, wanted a break. But Johanna, entitled as always, demanded the night off too. Tony refused outright. He ran this family, not her. Johanna owed him everything. He paid for her meals, her lodging, 
The mountains of clothes she purchased wore once and never again. Johanna, headstrong creature that she was, threw a royal fit. Tony locked her in the apartment above the bar, glaring at her mother as he went back to monitor the roulette tables. He told one of his guys to call Randall back in. He'd have to save his vacation for another night. But Randall was apparently already there, waiting by the apartment stairs. Tony cocked his head, confused. Randall had wanted the night off, hadn't he? Why was he here? The singer was sweating profusely. He told Tony he just missed everyone. Tony pointed out he'd said he had a hot date. Randall laughed nervously. Tony's eyes narrowed. He grabbed Randall and shoved him up against the wall, demanding he explain himself. Then he heard the sobbing from upstairs. He knew his daughter. He knew what she sounded like when she was denied something she wanted. He threw Randall aside and stomped up the steps, already getting a clear picture of what he was dealing with. Johanna denied it at first. Then she pleaded with Tony. She loved Randall. Didn't he see? They were going to have a baby. Tony gave a humorless laugh and stormed down the stairs, locking the door behind him. Randall waited at the bottom, still chastened, nervously clutching his hat, insisting that he respected Johanna. Tony nodded to Giorgio and Leo. They picked Randall up and dragged him to the car. Tony didn't have to do it himself. He had things to do, like hire a new singer. But he did give Randall one last nod before his men began to cut him up. Tony ran his fingers through his hair as he entered the Latin Quarter again. The roulette wheels and shuffling cards helped soothe him. Johanna was very lucky to have caught him in a relatively charitable mood. He'd at least allowed the crooner to go quickly. Tony climbed to the apartment again and told Johanna to get dressed for the show. They needed an act for tonight, and he'd get the baby taken care of later. Johanna set her teeth but one look at her father told her she didn't get to argue this time. Tony's wife, however, did try to argue. If anyone could have convinced him, it would have been her. Like Johanna, she tended to have him wrapped around her little finger. But a man's home was his castle. Tony had been disrespected in his own home. Balance had to be restored. Johanna stopped crying into her mother's shoulder and settled her gaze on her father. She thanked him for taking care of things, and she said she'd be ready to sing in half an hour. He kissed her on the forehead and returned to the tables. Johanna put on a hell of a show. Tony made sure to tell her how proud he was. Johanna returned the praise with a sad smile. She asked if she could have dinner with her parents later, just the three of them. Tony thought it was an excellent idea, glad she was finally making some sense. Tony's wife made a lovely soup to start. Johanna carried the bowls to the table and they all sat down together. Johanna told Tony how grateful she was that he looked out for her. She urged her father to try the soup. Her mother had outdone herself this time. Tony obliged. He loved minestrone. But something was off. There was an almost nutty taste. Almonds, perhaps? But his wife was so sensitive about her cooking, he had to be delicate. So he took another bite, just to be sure. His throat began to burn. 
He coughed, fingers clawing at his neck. Johanna looked at him, her head cocked the way his had been when he'd first realized what Randall had done. Daddy's little girl, his spitting image. Tony understood now, as his heart throbbed and his stomach roiled. She really was just like him. Johanna smiled as her mother rushed to help her husband, but it was too late. The floor opened up beneath him, and he fell down into sweltering darkness, leaving his body behind. Tony hadn't expected to go to heaven. His concept of hell wasn't too frightening either. He liked to keep his rooms hot for a reason. But this, where he found himself now, this he didn't understand. It was as if he was haunting Johanna, but she paid him no mind, going about her workday without so much as a glance in his direction. Her songs were sad, but beautiful. Dinner with her mother was quiet. Tony's wife looked at her child with hollow eyes. No matter where Johanna went, Tony was forced to come along, tugged by an invisible force. The nights were the worst. He'd watch Johanna stare up at the ceiling, eyes as vacant as her mother's, her fingers interlaced over her ever-growing abdomen. He tried to talk to her, but she didn't seem to hear him. Then, one night, he was forced to come with her to the basement. He'd always hated the basement. There was something dark and oppressive in there, a strange weight in the dark, making the air more stifling than it should have been. Tony hadn't been a superstitious man, but he made his henchmen go down there instead of him, if he could help it. But Johanna strode in with confidence, a small bottle clutched in her hand. The soft pings and rolls and murmur of the casino seemed to fall away in the inky blackness. Tony wondered if Johanna could feel that she wasn't alone, that he was here for her. Maybe he was learning to listen bit by tiny bit. His daughter's hands were shaking. The bottle glinted in the half-light. He couldn't read the label, but a hole was opening up in his chest. The tears, the solitude. He knew what she was about to do. Tony tried to stop her, but it was no use. His hands passed straight through the bottle as he attempted to snatch it from her. He called her name, tried to shake her, he ran for the stairs, calling for his wife, but the tether he couldn't see dragged him back to Johanna's side. Tony had cried only twice in his life, once on his wedding day, and once when he lost a very important horse race. But he was weeping now, chest heaving. He tried to apologize. He tried to tell her that he loved her. She didn't hear him, and she drank the liquid. It somehow looked worse on the outside than it had felt when it happened to him. Her skin went red and then black. He could feel her heart pounding in her chest as her body finally crumpled to the floor. He reached down to hold her, but she slipped through his fingers again. He kept trying, grasping desperately. Then, slowly, slowly, she began to materialize in his hands. He brushed her hair out of her face, telling her it was going to be all right. At least they were together. She pushed him away from her, letting out an angry scream. 
It wasn't fair, she said. It wasn't. Robert was supposed to be with her. He'd promised they would never be apart. Tony tried to soothe her, grabbing her hands gently. She pulled herself free and ran for the stairs. He followed, pleading. She screamed that she would never forgive him. He was a monster. She was supposed to be with Robert. Tony felt something break inside him, the tether coming loose. He was relieved at first, but then he felt himself falling, falling as if from a great height. He screamed for help, but nothing came. The inky darkness around him only grew deeper and more stifling. He fell and fell and fell and fell. Tony didn't believe in the devil. The world wasn't that simple. He'd found himself in a hell of his own making. And while Johanna searched for the lover he'd killed, Tony fell forever. Local legend says that a young woman named Johanna committed suicide in the basement of the Latin Quarter Casino when her mobster father wouldn't let her marry the father of her child. There are no written records to support this story, but investigators frequently leave flowers in the backstage dressing room for her. Knox, a shadowy figure, and the scent of rose perfume are said to be a sign that Johanna has arrived to look for the missing Robert Randall. She apparently loves music and is very, very fond of the jukebox. Coming up, a demon walks into Bobby Mackey's bar. Now back to the story. Before Bobby Mackey's Music World was a live music venue, it was a casino called the Latin Quarter. Rumored to be run by the mob, the gambling hall was targeted by local police. The club was sold and became a biker bar sometime in the late 60s or early 70s. But that didn't help with the violence either. Several shootings occurred outside of the building, and fires were reportedly set on the premises. But country singer Bobby Mackey didn't want to give up on the place. He'd driven by the location in its various iterations and had a clear vision of what it could be. Bobby sank his and his wife Janet's savings into the club. Bobby Mackey's Music World opened in 1978. It's said he hired Carl Lawson, a former regular at the club when it was a biker bar, to take care of the building during renovations and after hours. Lawson lived in the small apartment on the second floor. He would later claim to not have been the only one living there, even if the term living wasn't strictly accurate for the other residents. Carl was a fixture of the bar. It was his place of worship and his home a space he'd helped shape into something magnificent. He was proud of everything about it, down to the scratches in the wood. He let the jukebox play, thanking Johanna for picking something good this time. She may have been dead, but she was one of their most important patrons. They didn't get in each other's way, so he didn't see the harm in her little signs. She was just crying out for someone to acknowledge her like nearly every barfly who came through Bobby Mackey's doors. Carl liked how straightforward she was. When she was in a bad mood, Crazy by Patsy Cline came through the tinny speakers. 
A happier mood brought out Get Rhythm by Johnny Cash. She seemed a little melancholic today. The music cycled through a few Rosemary Clooney ballads as he collected glasses and ran out the last few bags of trash for the night. He went into the basement to check for stragglers. You never know if some drunk patron was going to stumble into the darkness to take a quick nap. The music stopped suddenly. Carl peered through the darkness, checking each nook and cranny before heading across the basement to the small room he used as a workspace. Some of his repair tools were left out. He paused. None of them were missing, but they should have all been safely stored in their box. Instead, the red metal container was closed and latched, a large wrench sitting on the top of it. He picked it up, confused. Carl peeked his head out of the doorway to see if anyone was lurking nearby. The basement was empty. A voice whispered in his ear that he would need these tools. He dropped the wrench in shock, standing in the silence. He waited for the voice to return, but nothing did. If this was one of Johanna's tricks, she was getting smarter and scarier. He thought it sounded more like an animal than a mobster's daughter turned singer. Carl stepped back out of the doorway to examine the larger room, retracing his steps in a circle, peering into the darkness. This time, he did see something in the corner, the shadow of a person. Carl jumped. The man rushed forward, begging Carl not to hurt him. He explained that he just needed a place to dry out for the night. Carl smiled in relief as much as friendliness. He had no interest in hurting the man and explained as much. He was just glad to know the voices weren't in his head. The man claimed he hadn't spoken. He asked Carl to please just put down the hammer. It was making him nervous. Carl looked down. He hadn't realized he was holding a hammer, but there it was, his knuckles turning white in his tight grip. The voice came to him again, telling him he'd need it. Carl told Johanna to cut it out. She shouldn't be acting this way in front of guests. There was no reply. Even the jukebox was silent. Somehow, that was the most frightening of all. Carl asked the man in the corner if he was absolutely sure he hadn't heard a voice. The man shook his head fearfully. Carl sighed, running a hand through his hair. He was losing it, too many hours by himself. Carl told the man to have a nice night and headed to his workshop again. He owed the stranger a little bit of privacy while he sorted out what was in his head. A growl echoed from the darkest corner of the room. Carl jumped and tripped, stumbling into a pile of wood. The voice was getting louder in his head, demanding his attention. He was an easygoing guy. If someone wanted to talk, he'd do his best to listen. Even if they weren't, strictly speaking, you know, alive. That was why he and Johanna got on so well. But this was too much, even for him. He didn't need someone else's thoughts in his head. He could barely keep up with his own some nights. He tried to get back to his workshop, but sharp pain shot through his head. 
Underneath the pain was the voice, louder and louder, urging him to give in. Carl tried to fight it. His left leg gave out. He fell to the floor. A dull ache spread out from his kneecap. Carl watched in horror as his own hand pulled away from his leg before slamming the hammer against it. Pain exploded from the impact. The voice echoed its order for Carl to do as it instructed. Carl accepted in a shaky voice. Whatever this thing wanted, he would do it. He didn't want to be hurt again. Static filled his head, blocking out all other sounds. There was nothing but scratchy noises in his ears. His vision shrank to a small pinhole. Someone else was fully controlling his body now. He felt his arms and legs move, but he didn't feel the ground beneath his feet or the hammer in his hand. He was detached from the world, a puppet of the voice. His legs pulled him towards another door, one that he never paid much attention to. There were a lot of spaces down here, and he didn't like to dawdle. With its limited light, the entire basement had a desolate feeling to it. Carl often felt like he was truly alone in the basement, not in a way that gave him solitude, but in a way that made him certain that after his life ended, there would be nothing but darkness. He saw himself kneeling down, tapping the floor with his knuckles, searching for soft spots. This place had so many different lives, it was impossible to know what the voice was searching for. It could be some long-forgotten mafia loot, or the bones of an old cattle head used in the satanic rituals the local teens claimed were carried out here. Carl had never believed that particular story. Until now. The voice, apparently, wanted Carl to know what was happening. It purred that they were looking for something that had been hidden a long time ago. A secret that only Carl would know. For now. Carl watched his hands clear away the debris. He beat the hammer against the floor again and again, until there was an opening he could almost see through. He crawled to the left and started hammering through the ground again, working at a brutal pace. The injuries he gained tonight would take years to heal. Still, his arms kept moving as more pieces of the floor fell away toward a widening chasm below him. All at once, he came back to himself. He felt the pain in his fingers from the debris, the soreness in his arm from all the hammering. There was a large gray stone circle several feet below where the floor ended. It looked almost like an old-fashioned well. Carl didn't understand. The voice had said this would quiet his fears of the basement, but it didn't answer anything. There was only darkness and silence, deep enough to swallow him up and never let go. Then came the fire, the smell of brimstone. A pair of large red wings passed through the bottom of the well. And suddenly, Carl knew exactly what he was looking at. Hell itself. Carl Lawson claimed to have had experiences with several demonic entities at Bobby Mackey's. This included seeing full-body specters, hearing growls, and assaults on his person. 
It's said that he woke with a feeling of singular purpose and stormed down to the basement of the club, where he broke through the concrete foundation and opened up a portal to hell. He eventually grew so overwhelmed that he sought the help of a priest to exercise the demonic presence. This portal is not much to look at, but many mediums claim that they've received orders to harm themselves or others when they're too close to it. A sign stands in the entrance to Bobby Mackey's Music World. It reads, Warning to our patrons, this establishment is reported to be haunted. Management is not responsible and cannot be held liable for any actions of any ghosts or spirits on these premises. It might seem like a laughable warning, until you consider how many paranormal investigative teams have packed up and left early while exploring Bobby Mackey's, reporting feelings of unease, pain, and extreme levels of rage, especially in the basement. Bobby Mackey himself says he doesn't believe his club is haunted. He wants his patrons to focus on the present and the future, rather than the long line of darkness in the building's past. Somehow, the spirits have never manifested to the building's owner. It's clear some kind of presence leaves staff and patrons feeling restless and even unhinged. But people still visit, day after day, year after year. The club slogan is as direct as it comes. Come for the ghosts, stay for the music. But something else seems to have stayed long past closing waiting in the dark to swallow you whole. Thanks again for tuning into Haunted Places. We'll be back on Thursday with a new episode. And don't forget to come back on Tuesday for our Urban Legend series, available only on Spotify. You can find more episodes of Haunted Places and all other podcast originals for free on Spotify. Not only does Spotify already have all of your favorite music, but now Spotify is making it easy for you to enjoy all of your favorite podcast originals, like Haunted Places, for free from your phone, desktop, or smart speaker. To stream Haunted Places on Spotify, just open the app, tap Browse, and type Haunted Places in the search bar. I'll see you next time. Haunted Places was created by Max Cutler and is a ParCast Studios original. Executive producers include Max and Ron Cutler. Sound design by Russell Nash. With production assistance by Ron Shapiro, Carly Madden, and Travis Clark. This episode of Haunted Places was written by Lil D. Ritter and Jennifer Rache. With writing assistance by Greg Castro. I'm Greg Polson. Hi, listeners. Remember to check out the new ParCast original series, Medical Murders. Every Wednesday, meet the worst the medical community has to offer. Men and women who took an oath to save lives, but instead use their expertise to develop more sinister specialties. Follow Medical Murders free on Spotify or wherever you get your podcasts.